Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Marty and McGee in podcast form. We spent the entire three-hour program discussing the legacy and life of NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt, a seven-time champion, one of the most famous and arguably the most revered driver in the sport's history, a Hall of Famer. On February 18, 2001, Earnhardt was running third in the Daytona 500 as the pack entered turn four on the final lap. Earnhardt wrecked, and that wreck claimed his life. Ryan and I both lived that moment. I was there that day, and he was an integral part of the NASCAR industry in that time as well. We spend this entire program discussing Earnhardt's life and legacy. It's a unique Unique day here on Marty and McGee, and the reason is because on February 18th, it is the 20th anniversary of Dale Earnhardt's death at the racetrack McGee is currently uh, sitting at right now, the Daytona International Speedway. He was the greatest of all time at that racetrack and one of the most revered athletes that has ever walked the face of the earth, and certainly someone that had an indelible mark on both Ryan's career and my career. And McGee uh, did a tremendous four-part series on ESPN.com, really walking through in, in great detail with several interviews, probably dozens, probably a dozen interviews with different folks who were directly involved in Dale Earnhardt's career path and also in the aftermath of his death there at the Daytona International Speedway 20 years ago, um, has what I expect to be a fascinating piece tomorrow uh, on E60 at noon on ESPN uh, in conjunction with what he did on ESPN.com. So let's just get started right there, man. Uh, a landmark day for NASCAR, it being the 20th anniversary of Big E's death. Uh, kind of walk us through the process of putting together this four-part series. Well, it was a lot, and, and honestly, um, you know, so I, I, it was a year ago. There's a bug. I just got him. There was a year ago that uh, a, a producer called me. Actually, it was my editor at ESPN.com called and said, hey, so a year from now, and this was after Ryan Newman's crash, and we all thought you know, Ryan was dead, happened right here behind me, and, uh, and he wasn't. And we talked a lot about Earnhardt because the, the crash happened almost on the anniversary, the 19th anniversary of Earnhardt's death. And, and the pitch from the, from the editor was, what are we going to do a year from now? And I said, well, if I start working now, I can talk to everyone. We should just do a week-long series leading up to it, which is what we did. And then as I continued to interview people, uh, Dylan Hart Jr. and Mike Helton and Ryan Newman and all these folks, uh, we started putting cameras in front of them and uh, thought we might do some video, maybe do a story, and that turned into a much larger project. And, and people have asked me all week long, um, well, what's Marty think? And I'm like, well, listen to the show and watch the show on Saturday because I've told everybody that that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And, uh, I mean, you know the deal, man, when you're working on a story and when people start really opening up. And Dale Earnhardt Jr., I'm so thankful he, he opened up so much, and Ryan Newman did. And, and, and Mike Helton, I mean, listen, Marty, you and I both worked for Mike Helton. And he was, to me, every bit as intimidating, the former president of NASCAR, Every bit as intimidating as the intimidator himself. Mike Helton scared me to death. And, uh, and when, when he sat down with me and was laughing and was joking and got choked up and was emotional because Dale Earnhardt was one of his best friends, um, you know, that's just, you know it is, man, when you're, when you're interviewing someone and you realize what's happening, it's just a gift. And so I'm thankful to all those people. And these are all people that you know and I know. And uh, it's a tough, tough conversation to have, man. But they were willing to have it, and um, and I'm excited about having it with you this morning. There's all kinds of storylines throughout sport, but on Marty and McGee today, we're going to talk a whole lot about NASCAR racing and about Dale Earnhardt's legacy and about how complex that legacy is because it encompasses so many different things. It encompasses his mythical stature. Um, there are certain athletes and certain individuals in the history of this country and certainly in sports and entertainment who captivate us in a different way. And one of those ways is relatability. And there's never been another competitor in auto racing history that was more relatable to its fan base than Dale Earnhardt was. 
This guy owned a farm, and he didn't pay a whole bunch of people to go work on that farm. He went through the hay bales himself, and he scratched and clawed and worked and 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 quit school in the ninth grade, his greatest regret, by the way, because he so badly wanted to go race cars. Uh, he was the middle portion of a a a patriarch of an uh, an auto racing family, and then his namesake kind of kind of ended that. Uh, and it, it's just a fascinating tale that is even much broader than we're going to get into today. But what do you if you were to try and and we have a few minutes, but try to encapsulate his legacy. What 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 is it? Well, to me, there's two legacies, and that was kind of my pitch when we were working on this project, which is there's the racing legacy, right? And it's 76 wins and it's seven championships and, and winning the 1998 Daytona. He won, he won 34 races on this racetrack. I mean, one Daytona 500, we all remember 1998, but 34 races and the only 24 hours, a Rolex 24 hours race he won, he finished second in his division. And so, I, to me, his legacy is the most talented stock car racer that ever lived. And this is coming from a Richard Petty guy who sat in the stands in Rockingham and booed Dale Earnhardt in 1994 because I didn't want him to tie uh, Richard Petty's record for seven championships. And I was not alone. Most of us in the stands felt that way that day. But to me, the second legacy, and this is what I wanted to focus on this week uh, with all these projects, was the safety legacy. I mean, Marty, you remember, man, I wanted to quit. When, when we killed there were nine deaths in NASCAR in less than a decade, and we had three in the year 2000 alone, and I also covered IndyCar and drag racing and sprint cars, and we had all these, I mean, it was death everywhere. And uh, not a single driver has died in a, in a top three national NASCAR series race since February 18, 2001. And so to me, that legacy... Dale Earnhardt's safety legacy, all the lives that he saved because of what ultimately was a sacrifice, um, to me, I think we'll look back years from now and think about that uh, at the same level that we think of uh, with the Intimidator. Yeah, there's a whole lot of guys who are alive today, admittedly, because of what happened there at Daytona International Speedway on February 18th. 2001 I was there that day I remember that day in Technicolor I remember so many details so vividly and you know it, it, it's interesting because as you know ever since we lost Dale Earnhardt at this racetrack 20 years ago next week uh, on the 18th um isn't it isn't it something when you're here you still feel him here of course like, like I, I yeah. can't think of any other venue that you go to and it feels like that. And when I come here, I just I, I, it's, I keep expecting him to walk up. I really do after 20 years. And I know I'm not alone because everybody I talk to, uh, including you, I think we all kind of feel the same way. We absolutely do. And, uh, you know, I, I, remember, I remember February 18th, 2001, very vividly. I was down there for nascar.com and at that time nascar.com was just purchased by turner sports and so turner sports had the rights to really facilitate and and produce the website and it was the first race for fox in a landmark for nascar network television package and everything was unfolding beautifully uh michael waltrip was leading the race there in the last run of the race uh, my, uh, Dale Earnhardt had hired Michael, somebody who'd run 460-plus races and never won a points-paying race at the highest level of the sport, and nobody ever thought he would. And, and they thought Dale Earnhardt was absolutely crazy to put Michael in one of the cars that he owned. And there he was in that Napa Chevrolet leading that race with just a couple laps to go. And, and then Dale's son, Dale Jr., is right behind him in that iconic Bud Chevy, and they are making their way to victory lane in the Daytona 500, and Dale's running third. And then as they got into turn four on the last lap, Dale got turned and sent straight into the wall. And just the way the wreck looked, it just didn't look that bad. I mean, it didn't look like it was going to be that big a deal. We all expected Dale to get out of his race car, thrilled that his buddy won the race and his son finished second, but he would be absolutely pissed off at the whole wide world that that three car wound up dumped. And then we saw Ken Schrader's response. 
And when we saw Ken Schrader's response to that accident, everything changed because we knew that it was different. My estimation, McGee, in that moment was that Dale was bad hurt. And I did not, yep. uh, dead did not enter my mind for some time until I saw that ambulance. When I saw that ambulance going at a very slow rate of speed, I thought to myself, okay, this is really different. What do you remember? Yeah, no, that's what I remember. And then, and it was interesting. Uh, I interviewed Dr. Steve Bohannon uh, for this E60 special on, on Sunday. And, and Dr. Bohannon uh, worked over at Halifax Medical Center. For folks that don't know, the hospital is only a mile away from the racetrack. And, and Dr. Bohannon was talking about the life-saving efforts and he went into great detail about Dylan Hart's injuries when he when he saw him in the car. And I asked him about you know that slow pace of the ambulance. And his explanation was, well, you know, we weren't in a hurry because at that point we're trying, you know, to resuscitate it. We're trying life saving. You know, we're trying all these things to try to. You know, his lungs had collapsed, and we've got him on on oxygen. We're trying to to uh, to revive him on the way to the hospital. And so you're looking for a smooth ride, and it's only one mile away. And then I asked him later, I said, well, so when, when did you know that uh, Dylan Hart wasn't going to make it? He said, as soon as I saw him in the car. Mm. So, you know, they, they want to say that, you know, they were just they were going over there slowly and, and all that. But the reality was I think they knew. And, um, and, and certainly by the time they arrived at the hospital, and, and, and again, he, he gave me so much detail. But, yeah, I'm with you. I, to me – uh, you know, Tony Stewart had just crashed a half hour earlier, and it looked very much like Ryan Newman's crash a year ago. And it was on the back stretch, and the car, the number 20 Home Depot car up in the air, landed on the roof of Bobby Labonte, and sheet metal's flying, and, but it, it never quit moving. Like, the car just kept moving and moving and moving, and, and what we know now is that was dissipating energy, right? I mean, all, all that movement meant that all this is kinetic energy is going away from Tony Stewart. And when, when Dale Earnhardt hit the wall with that thud, that energy had nowhere to go except inside that race car. And we learned so much that day from that crash. But then what's frustrating is it looked just like, you know, Kyle Petty's crash and Kenny Irwin Jr.'s crash and Tony Roper's crash. And, and uh, as you have said a million times, you know, uh, it was Superman that died. And, uh, and that was the moment that woke everyone up, like, we've got to change something. Yeah, I mean it. They NASCAR and and the drivers too. It's you know we we as as journalists tend to give NASCAR a whole lot of grief for how reactive they were on everything in that era. And I mean y'all, everything. They were a reactive industry in yep. every way. And the drivers were just as bad. The drivers that they they felt like if I put on a Hans device, which for those of you watching or listening and are not auto racing people there's a piece of carbon fiber that goes around the neck of the driver and down to his kind of over his clav- his or her clavicle area and it has clips on it and it clips to the back of the helmet and thereby disallows the head from shooting forward in a whiplash whiplash motion in a head-on collision and in that era when Dale Earnhardt died they wouldn't wear them because they felt like you were a sissy and a pansy if you had that stuff on you were weak if you wore one of those. And they were also very cumbersome in that era. They, they hurt. You know, I, I've heard Jeff Gordon say many times that his just flat out hurt his clavicle area. And so, so many of those guys were apprehensive, uh, and that's being kind, that word, to wear them because of that. And then when Dale Earnhardt hit that fence in turn four and, and died – Everything changed. Now, it wasn't an immediate change. It was not an immediate change. I got a question for you. So, we're talking about Dale Earnhardt, and he's the intimidator, and I tell people all the time, it wasn't just intimidating on the racetrack. He scared me to death. Like, he, he was yeah. intimidating, like, when he walked in the room. What, what, is your, what, what is your go-to, like, Dale Earnhardt, the intimidator, intimidated you story? It's one that I have never told publicly, and I'll probably keep to myself, but I'll share this aspect of it. Many, many moons ago, I used to run around with Dale Jr. and drink a whole bunch of beer and raise all manner of hell, all right? We had a, we had a group yes. of dudes that, that we raised a substantial degree of hell. And uh, yes. so, so after one such night, um, I met Dale face-to-face, 
<laughs> and it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Fast forward uh, a couple of months, back in the day, the NASCAR marketing and licensing office was here in, in Charlotte. It was the only NASCAR establishment that was here in Charlotte for the corporate, for the company. And it was 39 of us, I think. It, I think it was 39 of NASCAR's employees worked here in a big old high-rise first union building downtown downtown uh, 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 Charlotte. Well, they had this appreciation dinner one night at DEI, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, the team that Big E owned. And Mike Helton was there, the then president of NASCAR. Uh, Big E was there. And they gave us this amazing gift. They brought every one of us up personally kind of offered a little nugget about our contribution to the year. They had this unbelievable record-breaking year in souvenir sales that year. That was the heyday, man. And and so we all got oh, yeah. to take a picture with Mike Helton and Dale Earnhardt. All right? And they gave us all a framed and matted original copy of the 1948 what? NASCAR rulebook, which I have hanging in my office at the lake right now. So as I get handed this gift... I get the Dale, the signature Dale Earnhardt grab around the neck. And I was right. terrified, and he leans down into my ear with this, like, grin on his face. He says, hey, you still running around, my boy? I said, I, I, I didn't have the guts to look at him. I said, well, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am. He goes, you take care of his ass. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Earnhardt, I will take care of him. Yes, I will sir. take care of him. And, <laughs> yes, um, sir. Let me tell you, let me tell you the heart rate went to about 190 when he leaned oh. down and started chatting oh. in my ear. He was one of the scariest dudes ever, and he was difficult to get to. I don't think as a journalist I ever got – I didn't. I only covered him as a journalist in 98, 99, and 2000. And I, that was, there was a different yep. era in NASCAR that, that, that time. They didn't just make guys available, especially him. No. You had to go get him, and I always got the Heisman. He ain't talking to you, you punk. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. He he, he he's too busy talking to uh, Tom Higgins. Yeah. and Steve Wade. Yeah, the real deal. And, yeah, the legends. He, the, the Hall of Famers. He, he ain't got time for us. Now, I, my deal was so when we were sifting through all this video for this E60 show, and I kept telling the so the the, the the two producers on this show incredibly talented guys uh, uh jason coster and scott sikowski but all added up they might be 50 years old like the two of them together so they never saw dale you know compete and and so i'm telling these guys all right pull this video and pull that video and i kept saying you know there's a sit-down interview with dale earnhardt that was done in the summer of 1999 and he's talking about his dad and, and I think it's pretty good. You might want to, if you could find it in the library. And they, I kept referring back to this interview. And they kept saying, well, what is it about this interview? And I go, all right, if I'm being 100% honest, I just want you guys to find it because I did the interview. And I was a field producer for ESPN back then for RPM Tonight, which started 25 years ago this week, by the way. And, uh, and, and I, I'm interviewing Dale. And I'm not on camera. I'm not mic- mic'd up. But you can hear me asking the questions. Well, they found it. And they sent it to me. And it's about 15 minutes long. And number one, the interview is not nearly as good as I remembered it. <laughs> and number two, I sound like I'm 12 years old. And number three, I also sound like I'm going to pass out. And the reason is because they just built DEI, the Garage Mahal. And we, they, they, they said, all right, you can interview Dale, set up in the, the executive dining room. And you remember this thing. This thing was lined with, like, gold leaf wallpaper. Oh, I yeah. mean, it was... It was 1990s, like money, you know, the, black and gold. The and, urinal, it, 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 the yeah, urinal flushers were gold. <laughs> I never seen that in Parisburg. Yeah, right. it was. No, yeah. And so we get in this dining room and we're setting up, and we get there way early. We got like an hour and a half before the interview. All of a sudden, the Dale, the door flies open, and it's Dale, and he goes, "Are you guys ready?" And I go, well, no, we, we got 90 <laughs> minutes. He goes, "No, you don't. It's time to go. We got to do this. You got five minutes." And he slammed the door. Well, you get you know this. I'm like this setup we have here at Daytona. It takes a long time to it get is. the light set and audio and, and everything. Well, we did it all in about five minutes, and we're sweating and plugging in stuff and setting it up. And five minutes later, he came walking in the door and he goes, "Good job. Now let's eat." <laughs> and the executive chef like brought in lunch, and we sat there and ate lunch. And he's asking us about our families and everything else. 
And I was like, why did you do that? He goes, because I wanted to eat. The only way we could do this, if I made y'all hurry, we could eat and then do the interview. I was like, I've never been so terrified. And, uh, and But you're right. You get that squeeze at the back of the neck, man. It was, uh, that, was, that meant you were okay. If he messed with you, that meant you were okay. And that was a big deal. It's one of those things like the Challenger. It's one of those things like John F. Kennedy. It's one of those moments that stop time in this country and that you remember where you were and what you were doing. And I'll tell you, I remember coming home from the Daytona 500 that year and turning on the news here in Charlotte. And Dale's face was on my screen with the the, with the uh, the numbers of his life, his birth and death underneath his his picture, and I just sat there and I I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I couldn't believe, like it, 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 oh my oh my God, Dale Earnhardt is gone. It's just it, it was so difficult to process, and again at that same time, I, I was so worried about Dale Jr. and everything that he was going through. And, you know, he had just gotten to a place where he felt his father's favor. There's, there's so many layers to this that, that some of you guys may not know. I mean, Junior spent his entire life, his entire youth, just trying to do everything he could just to get glimpses from his father, just to spend any time with his dad. And he had gotten in his dad's race cars, and he had succeeded beyond anybody's expectations. He'd won back-to-back Bush Series championships in, in the AC Delco car. He was a winner in the Cup Series. All of these things were happening, and all of a sudden, he wasn't. His dad wasn't like this, this mythical figure to his son anymore. They were peers. And that was the most beautiful thing. And then all of a sudden, that's ripped from Junior. I learned so much about him, uh, him being Junior, as a man the next weekend at Rockingham, North Carolina, when international reporters showed up from all over the globe. And NASCAR set up this, this tent outside of the Rockingham Speedway so that they could house all of these reporters that were coming in from all over the world to report on this global icon who had passed too soon. And I'll never forget Dale Jr. getting up there at that mic. And when asked the question of, of his response to his father's passing, said, I have cried for my father, but only out of my own selfish pity. I was completely floored by that statement because Dale Jr. has always had this thought process that even though it was his father, he was an icon and a god and a beacon and a light to millions of his fans, and they were hurting just as badly. And that perspective, I was so t- I still am so taken by that perspective because it's such selfless perspective. I would not have had that response. I remember when my mom died and my dad died and I was so internally destroyed. I wasn't thinking about anybody else. I was thinking about me. And that is not how Dale Jr. operated. We've been talking all morning and we'll continue to about February 18th, 2001, the day that NASCAR changed forever when seven-time NASCAR champion and the most famous driver in the history of the sport Dale Earnhardt died in turn four of the last lap of the Daytona 500. I was there that day as a young reporter in the sport. It was my fourth year covering the sport full-time, my first with Turner Sports out of Atlanta as a reporter for NASCAR.com. And I remember the last lap vividly. Michael Waltrip takes the checkered flag and wins the Daytona 500. And my job that day was to do another a sidebar, which is a kind of a featurey type of newsy featurey piece that wasn't the direct race lead piece. And mine was another near miss for Rusty Wallace. He didn't win the Daytona 500 again. Rusty finished third that day in that Daytona 500. And I went out to the pit lane and I was going to interview Rusty. He got out of his car and I put a tape recorder in Rusty's face and started to ask a question. And he shut me down. He said, you need to go find out what's going on with Dale. And 
I said, yes, sir. And I went back in to ask my question. I wanted to get the piece that I was assigned to do. And he said, damn it, I said to you, go find out what's going on with Dale. And that's like your daddy telling you that. That's Rusty Wallace. And so I turned and I went to, I kind of didn't know what to do. I got a little frantic because racers know, athletes know when it's bad. And so I went, okay, that was my real first indication. All right, this is, this is different. And I went to kind of go down the pit lane towards turn four and I got stopped immediately by NASCAR officials. You can't go any further. The ambulances are, are down there in turn four. Kenny Schrader's car is down there in turn four. So I didn't really know what to do. I went back to go to go back to Rusty, and I couldn't even see him. So I just go to the media room. I walk into the media room, which at the time was called the Benny Kahn Media Center. It was a small room, very cramped. And tiny. I so went tiny. back in there, and one of my colleagues was a gentleman named Dave Rodman, and Dave's wife worked in the ER at the hospital. And Dave was a very composed man when he had to be. And he had a, a different kind of vibe about him. I'm like, man, what is going on? And I see these veteran, like grizzled, tough as hell reporters with blank stares on their face and no color in their face. Guys like David Poole from the Charlotte Observer, Mike Mulhern from the Winston-Salem Journal, Ben Blake from Racer Magazine, that type of, of, of veteran reporter, and they all had very different expressions on their faces. They all, they all kind of knew, I think, at that point. All right, And then there's all of those, those images that we've all seen, as I stated earlier, the ambulance going extremely slow to the Halifax Hospital, Dale Jr. running to try to get information, all of those images that are seared in our minds. And the next thing that I recall is Dave being on the telephone, shaking. We had a landline hanging up the telephone and just turning to me and putting his head on my shoulder and openly weeping gutturally sobbing and I I hugged Dave I put my arm around him and I'm like holy cow I think Dale Earnhardt might have passed away in that wreck I got up I walked out of the media center through this this opening in this chain link fence to where a parking lot was where my car was and Laney and I had been married for 10 months at that time I walked up to the rental car, and the when she was sitting in the passenger seat with her feet on the dashboard and a book between her knees. She was reading a book. And I rapped on the window, and she looked up at me, and you could see the, the look on her face, like, what is going on? And she rolled the wind, She tried to roll the window down and couldn't. She opened the door. She's like, honey, what's going on? I had no color in my face. I didn't know what to say. And I said to her, honey, I... Dale Earnhardt's gone. Dale Earnhardt died in that crash. And I remember embracing her and weeping openly and looking to my left. And the garage area was like a funeral. There were crew members who were embracing one another and sobbing. And other crew members were listless and wandering and didn't know what to do. They were just wandering about. And I remember saying to Lainey, I love you, honey. This is going to be a really long day, so just bear with me. If you need something, I had, I had this old-school cell phone. I said, just come find me, and we'll get you food and, and what you need. And, and I remember going back into the media center, and then there was a small increment of time, and then Mike Helton walked into the media center and delivered those words that we all will remember. This is undoubtedly the most difficult dis- uh, announcement I've ever had to make in the accident in turn four. We've lost Dale Earnhardt. And as he said those words on that cell phone in one hand, I was holding up to a speaker in the ceiling and now seven-time NASCAR champion Jimmy Johnson who was racing in the Bush Series at the time, was on that cell phone, and on our landline on the other line was Hank Parker Jr., who also raced in the Bush Series, whose father, Hank Sr., the Bassmasters legend, one of Dale Earnhardt's best friend, was on the other line. I was holding those two phones up to that speaker, and both of those guys heard that announcement from Mike Hilton live on those phones. 
and the, the, the then it was just like I felt like my life was moving in slow motion at warp speed the rest of the evening. Live shots on various networks, and I'd never done TV before, and I had so much anxiety that I wouldn't say the wrong thing. And all I could think about the whole time was Dale Jr. I just wanted to know how Dale Jr. was doing. And once that evening ended, Laney and I were leaving the Daytona International Speedway at 1.30 or 2 in the morning, emotionally exhausted. And I will never forget, as we neared the Turn 4 tunnel, right where Dale passed, that song by Leanne Womack, I Hope You Dance, came upon the radio in the car. And I turned it off. And to this day, if that song comes upon my radio, I have to hit seek. I haven't been able to listen to that song since. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I didn't get to talk to Junior until the following Wednesday when he actually sent me an instant message on AOL and asked me if I would, if I went to MRO, which is Motor Racing Outreach, which is NASCAR's church. And I said, yeah, man, I go to MRO. I just wanted to know, like, are you okay? Are you okay? He goes, hey, man, I just need somebody to sit with me at church on Sunday. I remember that week really well. And I remember how proud and just astonished I was of how he handled that situation, how he handled that week. I will admire him for the rest of my life for the way that he handled that week. Uh, I'm so grateful for, for, I just looked at Twitter, which as any of you guys who are fans of this show know, it's not something that I make a habit of doing, except for when Marty and McGee's on. And I appreciate all your kind words about my recollection of that day in the previous block. And I was saying to Luke during the break, it's not something that I talk about publicly ever, because I never want Dale Jr. One thing that I never want to happen is I never want Dale Jr. to think that I'm leveraging our relationship. I never want to be in a position where he is disappointed in me for anything that I say about him or about his dad. And I've voiced that to him in the past, and he's always like, man, shut up. We're, you know, but but I, that's why I'm always kind of reluctant to go there. But today's the day to do that because we are discussing his father's legacy with so much depth, and for that matter, his grandfather's legacy. Big E wanted to race because of Ralph. And it's a beautiful racing legacy. I mean, look, Dale Jr., he's a Hall of Famer now, man. He, is, he, has, been, he has been voted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and that's as a guy who never won a Cup Series title. That's as a guy who won two Daytona 500s and two Bush Series championships, and above that was the face of the sport forever, and above that when the sport was in its darkest hour. The day we're talking about 20 years ago, Dale Earnhardt Jr. put the sport on his shoulders, and he carried it. If Dale Jr. had decided that day, I'm done, if he had decided in the following week, I can't race, NASCAR would not have raced. But because Junior raced, everybody raced, and the sport forged on. That weight is immeasurable, and he did it. And, I, look, my admiration for him as a man is immeasurable. And what he did in that time when he was in so much pain, him and his sister Kelly and his stepmom Teresa and his 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 uh, and Carrie and Taylor Nicole and all those folks that were in that family were in so much pain they decided to race and I've had conversations with Kelly I remember doing a doing a piece on Dale when he made the decision to go to to leave the, the family business to leave DEI and go to Hendrick Motorsports and drive the 88 car it was like going to the Death Star man it was like it was it was it it pissed a lot of his fans off that he decided to go race and be teammates with Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson. And I remember doing a cover story for ESPN the magazine about that. And it really the interviews really morphed into what it was like to carry that name. We sat there in his 
in in juniors. He had a he had a a, a, a sit go gas. I think it was a sit go Union seventy six is what it was. Excuse me. It was a Union seventy six gas station on his property, and we sat there on these bar stools with a couple cold Budweisers, and we just talked about life and love and what it was like to be an Earnhardt and to carry all of that with him. And I remember Kelly telling me during the reporting for that story that even still, even in that time, they couldn't go anywhere. They never had the chance to grieve. They couldn't go anywhere because everywhere they went, gas station, grocery store, people were running up to them going, man, I miss your daddy. Well, do you think we don't miss our daddy? That's what they had to be thinking at that time. A couple blocks ago, I kind of told my de- my remembrance of February 18, 2001, everything that went on. McGee, what, did, what, what was your day like that day? Uh, it was interesting because it started at Daytona. Um, I, had, I had been with ESPN for several years. I left ESPN when the NASCAR television contract went to Fox. And I was hired as a producer to produce a show called Totally NASCAR, Fox Sportsnet, with the show I had been working on, RPM Tonight. And, uh, oh, by the way, this is the show, first TV show to put you on TV on a regular basis. Just for the record, I'm, I'm responsible for putting Marty Smith on TV. As an analyst, I've always been very proud of that fact. But I, uh, we did our show from Charlotte on Friday. We produced it from Charlotte, but that Steve Burns, our, our late friend, was hosting it from down here. And at the old Victory Lane, uh, Dale Earnhardt, he called us and said, I heard y'all got a new show. I want to be on it. So we had him on uh, the Friday prior to the 2001 Daytona 500. And that very day, he had one of the most incredible intimidator moments right down here in turns one and two where I'm looking in the IROC race. Uh, he got spun out by Eddie Cheever, the Indy 500 champion, slid through the grass, put the car back up on the banking. I think finished seventh in the race, and when the race was over with, stalked Eddie Cheever down. And Eddie Cheever's a big old guy and speaks multiple languages, a Formula One driver and all that. He was so scared of Dale Earnhardt. And Earnhardt ended up just squeezing him on the neck and saying, hey, man, it was just a racing deal. But we had Dale on Totally NASCAR, and when Earnhardt sat down on the set, he knew I was in Charlotte and I was in his ear. And we did the interview, and when it was over with, he looked directly into the camera. He said, McGee. I said, yeah. He goes, congratulations on the new job. I said, thanks. He goes, don't blink it up and walk off. (laughs) And that was the last time I ever talked to him. And and so – the next morning, I flew from Charlotte down to Daytona, and I was here on Saturday just kind of shaking hands and telling people, please come on our new TV show. And Sunday morning, I was here at the track, and then I flew out right after the green flag, and I went home. And I, I got to my house in plenty of time for the end of the race, and uh, my boss was Patty Wheeler, Humpy Wheeler's daughter. And Patty was uh, watching the race in a box with uh, uh, the Fox executives. And David Hill, chairman of Fox Sports, was there. And uh, the race ended, and the crash happened. And I'm already taking notes because I'm getting ready for our Monday edition of Totally NASCAR. And Marty, it wasn't 15 minutes after Fox went off the air that my telephone rang. And it was, uh, it was David Hill and Patty Wheeler, and they said, Miller Hart's dead. Get in your car, go to the office, because you need to write and produce the obituary, uh, the feature that we're going to run uh, on all the Fox platforms tonight. And, I mean, I knew, I knew an hour and a half before most people did. And so I went to the office, and, uh, and everyone – at the office there in Charlotte, at the Fox office, they knew just like I knew because they'd received the same phone call. And, buddy, I'm telling you now, I'm talking about a lot of our old friends in this business. Uh, Scott Scooter Keith, uh, Scott Bullard, um, Johnny Roberts, uh, uh, Derek Cope was there, and everybody was crying because the, the reality of it just didn't set in. I didn't cry because, unfortunately, I kind of had this this uh, death gear that I would shift into because I had covered so many deaths in in my relatively short career at that point in the late 90s. And, 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 and of course, in 2000, we lost three NASCAR drivers just that year. And, and Greg Moore, and Scott Brayton, 10 Alabama Speedway, 
and, and I knew all these guys. I knew Adam Petty. I knew Kenny Irwin Jr. I knew Tony Roper. And uh, so I kind of shifted into what I call death gear, and I just did the job. And when I got home that night at 1 o'clock in the morning, um, I had already thought about what, what are we going to do for, for our show tomorrow night, and I just collapsed on the couch and just started crying. And it just was stress. And it just was a release and the, and the reality of what had happened. And, Marty, to me, that, that, was, that was the challenge of it was the acceptance that it had happened and, and that it was Dale Earnhardt. And everyone had reasoned their way through. Well, Adam Petty's 19, right? And uh, Kenny Irwin Jr. was always kind of reckless. And, you know, Tony Roper, he's in the truck series, and he got turned weird on the front stretch. But, but everybody had a way of kind of – Kyle Petty said it to me. You just figured out where to put it. And with Dale Earnhardt, you couldn't put it anywhere other than just disbelief. And, and I remember that week uh, having Ken Squire in and Daryl Walter in and, uh, and Larry McReynolds, you know, was my Monday analyst on Totally NASCAR. And, and Larry, he was in his first week as a television analyst. And, of course, had been Dale Earnhardt's crew chief when they won the Daytona 500 in 1988. And just uh, – it, it just it just didn't compute – that's the best way I could I could say. And uh, I just lost my mother, and and uh, I, it just it, it, I, when I think about it now, it's amazing. And it, the detail that you shared earlier about what you remember about all that, the detail is incredible. And I'm the same way. You, you, I love the way you put that when you say you remember it in Technicolor. That's exactly how I remember it. And it's just there's certain days you remember. And uh, even though that day I kind of checked into this zone, uh, when I look back on it now, I remember it in such greater detail that I probably could have even if you'd asked me that week. So uh, to me, that's that, that's a really long way of saying it just didn't compute. It just didn't make any sense. And, and that was the part that I think we all wrestled with. Yeah, I think, I think everybody justified all those uh, – figured out a way to justify all those other unfortunate deaths in stock car racing, in NASCAR racing. But when it's Superman – there is no more turning a blind eye or trying to justify it because Superman doesn't die and Superman was dead. Clinton Yates from the undefeated on the line right now. This man right here loves him some NASCAR. Big Casey Kane fan. He went through a he went through a period where he didn't know who to cheer for when Casey Kane retired. How you doing this morning, bro? I'm doing good, man. It's good to see you. I just want to, um, you know, first of all, I just want to commend you guys for sort of pulling this together and doing this show that you guys are doing today, all these memories. You know, I've just been thinking about, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, my memory of this day was that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year. And this was my first real sort of foray into, you know, this sport is something that I didn't know. And I believe that part of the reason why that was difficult for me to understand at first is because, listen, I'm a brother from the city. So when I watched NASCAR, it was very much in kind of a different world. It was just dudes going around the track. And when this situation happened, and I remember the connectivity I felt towards Dale Jr. thinking, he's going to have to deal with this? you got to be kidding me. I did not understand what it took to be a NASCAR driver until Dale, Dale Earnhardt passed away on that track at Daytona. That's really what it comes down to. And, you know, ever since then, I sort of understood a lot more about the life, a lot more about what it takes just in general, and a lot more about, obviously, the risk of death as well. Again, our guy Clinton Yates from the Undefeated joins us on the Goodyear Hotline, brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear more driven. Clinton, you're so right. In the aftermath of Dale passing, that was my overarching thought process was I'm worried for Dale Jr. I'm concerned for Dale Jr. He's a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine since well before his father passed. And it's a heavy enough burden to carry that name. It's a whole other degree of a burden to carry that name when that name dies suddenly. And everyone looks to you to be the barometer and and really the, the compass on what we should do next. Should we race on? Should we forge on? Should we continue to do this? And Dale Jr. raced, you know, so I, everybody raced. Clinton? I remember the thing about that was, too, thinking like, 
I, you mentioned Casey Kane was my favorite driver, but almost every time I sat down and watched the race, Dale Jr. was the guy I kind of wanted to win, if, yeah. that, if that makes any sense. I mean, just in, in life overall. And I know now, I watch him on the sh- various shows he does. I see him as an ambassador for the game. And as somebody that was once a fan of the Washington football team, I would sort of see him in other spaces as well. I don't know that Dale Jr. is going to get enough credit for who he is as a human in terms of the sports world at large in, you know, in his life for how he's dealt with all this. And that's something that I always sort of just have admired about him. I, I am a huge fan of Dale Jr. as a result of the fact that he has been able to carry on this legacy in a way that nobody could predict, Marty. You don't just say, okay, well, here's what you're supposed to do anyway, because it's hard enough to live up to it on the racetrack. Never mind if you were befallen with tragedy. I just, I'm continually impressed by how not just Dale Jr., but how that whole family has held things together. You know, um, I, I, I remember the first time I ever even sort of came into consciousness about um, Big E, which was that a buddy of mine was a NASCAR fan, and I said, you know, this is when I sort of first sort of got into it, and I said, well, who do you like? Who do you watch? He goes, come on, man, the black car, the Intimidator. I go, that guy? That guy's a random redneck who's got a goofy signature. Why would you like him? And he was just like, just watch him race. You know what I'm saying? And that is something I figured out later was what the draw was, you know. And so very early into my career, obviously, his life ends and, you know, the safety elements that ended up changing afterwards or something. But, you know, his, 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 his passing, the 20th anniversary of that is, is a very, it is almost in a very weird way my sort of origin story as a NASCAR fan. Speaking of all those safety developments, McGee's back with us now. I think he just finished OTL, or that's probably what he was talking about. And, you know, going back to Dale Jr., Clinton, where you're talking about him having to manage all this, we've all three been so blessed to see some of the most amazing sporting moments over the past 20 years in this country, and and, and, and period. We've all lived it. We've been there in person I've never been to one that was greater than the 2001 Pepsi 400 at Daytona International Speedway when Dale Jr. came from sixth to first to win that race just months after his dad died on that racetrack. And I remember just, I remember the energy and the unbridled response that he had when he got out of his car and he jumped on the roof and he was just overjoyed. It was like that was... That wasn't a Band-Aid for NASCAR fans. That was a tourniquet for NASCAR fans because we'd been bleeding the entire time since Big E died. And when Junior won that race, it was just such a, a beautiful moment. McGee, uh, you, just, you, you were on OTL? What were you talking about, safety? Yeah, we were talking about safety and, and obviously you know, talking to Jeremy Schaff about uh, uh, the, what you guys were talking about, which was – I don't think any of us, listen, in the garage, in the sport, and back then I was traveling you know, to the racetrack almost every single weekend as you were, Marty. But, Clinton, when you've told your story about becoming a fan then, I, I think, Marty, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I think this is true. None of us realized exactly how big Dale Earnhardt was. And this is something that Dale Jr. has said to me. And this is something that Mike Helton, former president of NASCAR, said to me, which is, you know, at Rockingham the next weekend – you know, Dale, Dale Earnhardt's on the cover of Time Magazine. And, and you know, all of a sudden, every newspaper yeah. in the world was there. And it wasn't just about the death. They, they all knew who Dale was. And, and I think that even the people in the garage who knew he was a big deal, we all kind of lived in this bubble. And, and so to to understand that and to realize that, I think it caught everyone off guard. So, Clint, when I've heard your story about that's when you started watching, I think there's millions of people, and the numbers say it, that started watching the next week. Uh, and it was, you know, in the well, oddest way, you know, Dale worked so hard to promote that race, and in the oddest way, the sport was boosted because of his loss. That's the craziest thing, too, because as you mentioned in your story, Ryan, which, you know, again, I, I can't recommend enough. I thought you laid it out so well in those four parts. That was also a big media deal. Thank you. you know, Fox had just got the deal. It was supposed to be a huge thing. You know what I mean? It wasn't just happenstance that something happened and then all of a sudden people tuned in. It was billed as the Super Bowl of NASCAR. That was the time when I remember that word first sort of coming into my parlance. And when 
you know, because there was also, there was a big crash in that race prior too. So I think a lot of people learned a lot about the different machinations of how difficult a race can be to get through, never mind to win. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very bizarre and bittersweet to say that the passing of arguably the greatest driver of all time in a lot of people's minds was such a major moment in the sports history in terms of modern times. But, you know, that's where we are. And again, I just, I cannot say enough how impressed and how much I admire Dale Jr. for not only just carrying on the legacy of his own family, but showing people that ra- that NASCAR, you know, wasn't just, you know, rednecks and hilljacks trying to, you know, run around the track. You know, there were people behind this. There was a business and there was empathy and there was love to be had amongst those on the track. And I, I just, I can't say enough. I, I, I just, I really hope him and his family have a day today that they can take something from and fulfill themselves, you know, as people, not just as people around NASCAR. I've uh, I've spent this week reading all the pieces, certainly McGee's four-part series, and again, there's an E60 piece tomorrow uh, show, hour-long show, uh, the Intimidator, the lasting legacy of Dale Earnhardt, Sunday at noon uh, on ESPN, and one of the quotes that really stood out to me was from Ricky Craven, our former colleague at ESPN, who. He had his own terrible crashes. Uh, He went through so many obstacles throughout his career with head trauma. And he told our brother Bob Pocker, so Bob's over at Fox now. He's our former colleague here at ESPN, too. I want to read you all this quote because it kind of stopped time for me. We lost an icon, Craven said, but it was far more complex than that. For the first time, I'm having to explain to my wife that, yeah, it's still worth it and to my mom, my dad, my sister, and my children. To put it very plain and simple, I said to myself, if Dale Earnhardt could die in a race car, we're effed. That's as clear as I can say it. That, that quote of all the stuff that I read, I was, I was like really taken by that particular quote from Ricky because it sums up so succinctly that the driving core for the first time said, we have to stop turning a blind eye to this. Three other drivers had died within, you know, within that same year. And guys just forged right on. We can justify those. But when Superman dies, I got to go answering questions to everybody in my life. Well, it's circle. vulnerability. Yeah. It's vulnerability. And, guys, we yeah. all see this with athletes when they're injured for the first time. You know, you've always relied on your body, and it's always been, you know, what you have that no one else has when you're a great athlete. And the first time an athlete – we saw it with Michael Jordan when he first got into the NBA. When an athlete suffers an injury and it sits them on the bench, it makes them feel vulnerable. And they thought they were superhuman. And so – the, the most difficult thing to look at a race car driver, a person that makes their living at 200 miles per hour, and look at them and say, you know, just so you know, you're not bulletproof. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a hard, hard concept to accept for anyone, but particularly these guys. It absolutely they, is. And, and they, Go ahead, Clinton. Uh, real quick, give us your final thought on this. I was just going to say, you know, there's a term that, uh, that my uncle used to use, which is to say that to get something you never had, you got to do something you've never done. And in this particular situation, what NASCAR didn't have was that sort of real deal safety element. And as a result, they had to do something they'd never done and actually put people in safer positions. And now we've got what we've got today. When I was a kid, we had this little, this little tiny box, maybe, maybe four by four of just phrases on these little strips of cardboard and they were amazingly insightful clinton your uncle we need we need the clinton's uncle box of of sayings because i like yeah i like that right there 